The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Isaiah chapter 7. We are taking a break for a little while from our study of Romans. We're going to come back and finish that here in a few weeks. We're going to take today and next week to um, preach a little, uh, a little about Christmas and then our question and answer time. And we'll be back in Romans 15 after the start of the new year. Today and next week, though, I do want to devote our attention to Christmas. I want us to be thinking as a church family about this. We don't want to miss what is taking place this time of year as we celebrate. We don't want to miss Christ in the midst of Christmas. We all know as believers that Christmas is about the arrival of Christ. It's about the birth of our Savior. It's about the fact that God became a man. He entered into our world. He became us. He became one of us. He took on human flesh in order that he could redeem us. Christmas is about the incarnation. And you probably are well aware of the story of Christmas. You've heard it for many years. You know the historical events that brought this about 2,000 years ago. You're well aware of the fact that an angel uh, appeared to Mary and pronounced to her that you're going to be the mother of the Savior. Through you is going to come Christ, the Messiah. Nine months later, as they traveled to Bethlehem from Nazareth, she gave birth in a stable, in a very humble place, without any fanfare, without anyone really being aware of it. And that night, angels made the announcement to the shepherds in the field that Christ had been born. The shepherds showed up that night and saw the newborn Christ and, and worshipped him and told others about him. And, and then Simeon and Anna, a few days later, they heard as well about the birth of Christ and they got to see with their own eyes the Savior in his first few days. Wise men, a number of months later, came and saw this child bringing gifts. You're aware of the facts you know the historical events that lead up to and bring about this wonderful birth. As Christians, though, we need to understand that, that the Christmas story doesn't start there. It doesn't start in Bethlehem. The Christmas story actually begins much earlier than that, than the, uh, much earlier than the actual birth of Christ. It begins in the Old Testament begins hundreds of years before Christ was actually born, as there's one prophecy after the other, laced throughout the Old Testament, all anticipating and all speaking about the arrival of the Messiah in this world. Genesis 3.15 is perhaps the earliest one, and it is the first announcement that there would be a unique birth. Genesis 3.15 says that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That is the first glimpse in the Bible that this birth would be unique, and her seed, Christ, would be special. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, a very well-known text about this, says, as you know, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. There's prophecy after prophecy and promise after promise all throughout the Old Testament pointing to the arrival of Messiah. And one of those, perhaps the most famous, is found here in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. You know it well. You've heard it many times. You've heard it recited. You've, we've sung songs about it. It's Isaiah 7, verse 14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. A marvelous prophecy filled with all kinds of meaning. I've never preached on it. 
For 15 years, I've preached on all, almost all of the other passages related to Christ's birth, but not this one, partly because it's very difficult. There's a lot of theological nuances in this one little verse. In fact, one writer has said probably no single passage of the Old Testament has been so variously interpreted or given rise to so much controversy as the prophecy contained in these verses. There have been reams written on this one verse. There have been theses and dissertations and books and articles written on this one verse. It's tremendous. A lot of questions come up in this verse, like who is the virgin that Isaiah is speaking about? Is it someone in Isaiah's day or is it someone in Christ's day, his mother Mary? And related to that, of course, is who's the child? Who's the son? Was it a son born in Isaiah's day or is it Christ? Or is it a combination of all of that? I want to look at it this morning. Isaiah 7, and I want to take you through the actual context of this verse. I want to take you through verses 1 to 16 of Isaiah chapter 7. And I want you to notice that, first of all, Isaiah is a prophet to the nation of Judah, and he's writing this prophecy 700 years before the arrival of Christ. A prophecy about his birth. A prophecy that he would be born of a virgin. Incredible promise, incredible birth, something supernatural, something miraculous that is prophesied here, something that is a staggering reality that a woman who had never been physically intimate with a man would give birth to a son. There have been some very unique births in human history. I think I've mentioned some of these in past sermons at Christmas, from the smallest baby born little girl named Amelia in Germany, born in 2016, who weighed at birth eight ounces. And she survived. To the largest baby ever born, a baby born in Italy in 1955, weighing 22 pounds, eight ounces. I feel so sorry for that mom. <laughs> Don't babies start talking at about 22 pounds? to the most babies ever born at one time. We've heard of sextuplets and septuplets, even octuplets a few years ago. To the oldest mother ever having given birth to a child, a woman in India who for five decades tried to have a baby and went to a fertility clinic a numerous times with her husband and finally for the first time gave birth to a baby girl at age seven. I don't think God has built you to care for a baby at age 70. Incredible. To the first test tube baby, a little girl named Louise Brown who was born in England in July of 1978, the first human ever conceived outside the human body. All unique births. All incredible births, but none of them miraculous. None of them supernatural None of them unique in the sense that this one is unique. The one promised here in Isaiah 7, 14, this one supersedes all of those. This one would be a miraculous birth. The virgin birth, the virgin conception, the greatest conception that has ever been known in human history. I would argue this morning that this reality, the fundamental reality of the virgin birth is essential to the Christian faith. This is fundamental to Orthodox Christian belief. If you deny this, and by the way, there are many today who deny this. The, the doctrine of the virgin birth is under attack, not just outside of our church, but within inside the church. There are many who will deny that this is a reality. There are liberals within Christianity who deny the supernatural and will say that there's no such thing about a virgin birth. This is what the scriptures teach. But the Lord allowed Mary to conceive by a supernatural work a child who would be our Savior. 
So fundamental and so wonderful is this reality that those who wrote the Apostles' Creed actually devoted two lines to this. You're familiar with the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Two statements in that very short creed are given to this reality, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Isaiah said it would happen this way. Isaiah prophesied that this is how it would take place, that this baby would be born of a virgin and this baby would be named Emmanuel, God with us, that God himself would appear as a human infant. And this is the heartbeat of the Christmas story, that God entered into our world as a baby to redeem us. Someone has well said, more astonishing than a baby in a manger is the truth that this promised baby is the omnipotent creator of the heavens and the earth. It's remarkable. How does God step into humanity? How does God enter into our world? The only way for this to take place is if there is a virgin birth. And I want to take you through that this morning in Isaiah chapter 7. I want to show you three Points. The first two will come from Isaiah 7, verses 1 to 16, and the third one, we're going to draw some theological implications of this incredible reality of the virgin birth. So let's look at this first. Number one, the first of these three points is the historical setting of the virgin birth prophecy. Now, here's what we're going to do for a few minutes. We want to walk through verses 1 to 9 in, in Isaiah chapter 7, and I want you to see that there is actually a historical context to this verse. You see it written, you hear it preached on, you hear uh, verses being given in various readings, you see it on a Christmas card, and yet we have to realize that this verse occurs within a historical setting. And so if you're interested in history, I think you'll find this fascinating. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aaron, Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. Here's Isaiah. A prophet to the southern kingdom, Judah. He's there, he's ministering, he's serving, he's God's mouthpiece to Judah. He's ministering for about 54 years from 739 B.C. to about 686 B.C. And if you know anything about Old Testament dates... You're familiar with the fact that Isaiah then was prophesying in the southern kingdom at the time the northern kingdom was taken captive by Assyria in 722 B.C. And he ministered all the way up till about 686 B.C., which was about 100 years before the southern kingdom was taken captive by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And Isaiah tells us, in those days, the days of Ahaz, something happened. And we meet some people here. I want to introduce you to some of these people, and you'll see why this is important in just a moment. In the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Here's the king of Judah. His name is Ahaz, and his father was a king, that's Jotham, and his grandfather was a king in Judah, and his name was Uzziah. And Ahaz is here ministering in Judah. He ministered for 20 years. He was the king over Judah for 20 years from 735 to 715 B.C. And you need to know that he was a wicked king. He was an idolatrous king. He was not one of the good kings of Judah. He was a wicked, idolatrous, rebellious king. And Isaiah tells us something very fascinating about what was going on in those days, the days of Ahaz. It says in verse 1 that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. We meet a couple other individuals here. We meet a, meet a man by the name of Rezin. He's the king of Aram, which is Syria. He's over that region far north of Israel. And also, in addition to him reigning, there's another one called Pekah, the son of Remaliah, who's the king of Israel. And they've agreed to engage in a partnership, a coalition, an alliance to go against Ahaz in the southern kingdom. So Rezin comes to 
Pika and says, we don't like this guy Ahaz in the southern kingdom. We want someone else in his place. And so they form this alliance and they agree to go to war against Ahaz, the king of Judah. Why? Look at verses 5 and 6. Skip down just a couple verses. We'll come to this in just a moment. But look at what they're intending to do. It says in verse 5, because Aram with Ephraim, the son of Remaliah, that's Aram, the Rezin, he's the king of Aram, and Ephraim, that's Israel, and the son of Remaliah is Pekah, the king of that. They've agreed to come together, verse 5 says, and they have planned evil against you, saying, let us go against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up for the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. That's what they wanted to do. They enter into a pact. And what they want to do is go against the king of Judah in order to put another king in his place, a vassal king, a puppet king, someone that they could control. You can see what their heart is. It's ultimately to divest themselves of this king in Judah who's a threat to them and put in his place a more compliant king, someone who will go along with their plans and their purposes. Go back up to verse 2. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, or the Syrians have camped in Israel, his heart, Ahaz's heart, and the hearts of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. People of Judah hear about this. They hear about this coalition. They hear about this threat. They they hear about these these people who are going to attack them, and they're scared, and they're fearful, and they're terrified to the point that they're shaking like trees in the wind. And what Ahaz should have done in this moment is he should have sought help from the Lord, but he didn't. Instead of seeking help from the Lord, this wicked, idolatrous king actually went to one of his enemies, the Assyrians, and asked him for help. Listen to 2 Kings chapter 16. It says, so Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and deliver me from the hand of the king of Aram and from the hand of the king of Israel who are rising up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and the gold that he found in the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria, their enemy. So the king of Assyria listened to him, and the king of Assyria went up against Damascus. He takes money from the temple to bribe Assyria to come help him in his battle against Rezin and Pekah. He should have gone to the Lord. But he didn't. And if he had gone to the Lord, he would have heard that God was actually going to deliver him and Judah from the hands of their enemies. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shir Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. God says to Isaiah, Isaiah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go meet Ahaz, king of Judah, and I want you to go take your son with him, Shir Jashub, and his name means a remnant will return. In other words, Isaiah's son was to be an object lesson to Ahaz that God was actually going to deliver them from their enemies. Verse 4, and say to him, Isaiah, say to Ahaz, take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. God says to Isaiah, take this message to Ahaz and tell him not to be afraid. Tell the people not to be terrified. Tell the people not to worry because I'm in control and I'm going to deliver you and I'm going to take care of you. And he says, they're just two firebrands of smoldering fire. That's all they are. You ever gone to a bonfire? And after everything's kind of been settled down, all that's left are these pieces of wood that are basically burned up. That's all that's left. And God says, Isaiah, tell Ahaz that resin and pika are pretty much that. And that's it. 
verse 5, 6, we already looked at it, because Aram and with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it, make for ourselves a breach in its walls, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Verse 7, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. In other words, it's not going to happen. This plan that these two kings have devised against you, Ahaz, is not going to happen. In fact, I'm going to make sure it doesn't happen. I'm going to guarantee your safety and your protection. Verses 8 and 9. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now watch this. Within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you will not believe, you shall surely not last. God says to Ahaz through Isaiah, within 65 years, Israel is going to be no longer. These people who appear so strong and these people who are coming against you in coalition with the Syrians, you need to understand that within 65 years, they will no longer be a people. That prophecy was issued in 734 BC and 12 years later in 722 BC the Assyrians came and took the Israelites away into captivity and 65 years after this initial prophecy in 669 BC many foreigners were actually transported into the land so on the one hand, in 722 B.C., there were people who were taken out of the land by the Assyrians. And then in 669 B.C., there were people who were brought into the land to make sure that the Israelites could no longer regather and have this hope of identity and return as a people. They are known as the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel. God said, don't worry, Ahaz. I have a plan. Look at the end of verse 9. And if you will not believe, you shall surely not last. Isaiah says to Ahaz, you need to believe in the Lord. You need to believe in God's plan. You need to entrust yourself to the God who's promised to protect you and take you and save you and deliver you. You need to trust in him. Stop trusting in your ways. Stop trying to get people on your side, your enemies even, who will assist you. You need to trust in God's sovereign And if you don't, Ahaz, verse 9 says, you shall surely not last. So here's what's going on. Judah is threatened. They're being almost attacked by a coalition of forces to their north. Then it gets really interesting. Point number two. That's the historical setting of the virgin birth prophecy. Point number two is the specific contents of the virgin birth prophecy. And what you're going to see next is how God actually assures Ahaz that his deliverance and the deliverance of the Judah people would actually occur. He's going to give him a sign. In fact, he even offers for Ahaz to choose the sign. Look at verse 10. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Hey, Ahaz, um, this is going to happen. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to protect you. Your nation is going to be delivered. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be terrified. You don't have to be afraid. In fact, to guarantee that what I'm saying to you is true, I want you to choose a sign, Ahaz. I want you to pick a sign for me to do. I'm going to do something miraculous for you. I'm going to do something supernatural for you. And you can choose whatever you want, Ahaz. In fact, notice the limits he gives him. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. You can do anything you want, Ahaz. You can go as high as you want. You can go as low as you want. You can do anything in between that you want. You can pick anything, Ahaz. I'll do it for you to prove to you that I'm going to deliver you and provide you protection from your enemies. God hands Ahaz a blank check. Pick anything. Pick whatever you want. Pick the most wonderful, supernatural, miraculous sign you can think of, Ahaz, and I'll do it for you to prove that my word to you is true. It's an incredible offer. 
a miracle performed simply for the asking, what would you choose? Look what Ahaz did. Verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Ahaz gets all spiritual now. Ahaz gets all pious now. Ahaz gets all sanctimonious now. Remember, he's wicked. He's idolatrous. He hasn't been serving in the Lord for much of his life and his reign anyway. But suddenly, when God offers him this incredible offer of a sign to prove his word, Ahaz goes, oh, I could never do that. How far should I go, Lord? Should I really do? I would never do that. I would never put you to the test, Lord. This is hypocrisy. You could just sense the hypocrisy spilling from his lips and his heart. God gave him the opportunity. God even commanded him. And Ahaz says, oh, no, I could never, ever, ever do that. This is feigned reverence. Verse 13, then he said, listen now, O house of David. Mark that phrase, O house of David. This is important because we're going to come back to this because he's now speaking not just to Ahaz. He's speaking to the nation, the people of Judah. He's speaking to them generally now. Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you would try the patience of my God as well? Ahaz, you said you don't want to put the God to the test. You're putting God to the test because you won't do what God has offered you to do. God would have been completely justified in removing his offer for a sign. God would have been completely right in saying, fine, Ahaz, you're too sanctimonious for this. Forget it. I'm not going to give you a sign. But he doesn't. In his grace and his mercy, look at verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. God says, I'm going to do it anyway. Despite your disobedience, Ahaz, despite your unwillingness, if you're not going to ask for a sign, Ahaz, I'm going to give you one anyway, and it's going to be a sign of my own choosing. Verse 14, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. You don't do what I said, Ahaz? I'll do it anyway, and I'll give you a sign. I'll come up with a sign. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the very sign that you need to know, Ahaz, that will confirm my word to you, and it's this, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. There will be a virgin birth. This is where it gets a little technical. So buckle up your theological seatbelt. You need to understand that the issue here hinges on the word virgin. In the Hebrew text, it is the word alma. In English, if you were to write it, A-L-M-A-A-H. And there are critics today who say that this cannot be referring to a literal virgin birth. People who deny the supernatural. And they'll say, well, it must mean someone other than a virgin. And so if you have some Bibles, actually put a phrase in here instead of the word virgin. It's a young woman shall conceive. If you have a New American Standard Bible, which is what I'm preaching out of this morning, you can look in your marginal notes and you can see the marginal note that says a maiden will give birth to a son. So what is it? Was Isaiah saying literally that an actual virgin, a woman who has never known a man, would give birth to a son? Or is Isaiah saying that a young woman would bear a son. It all comes down to this Hebrew word, Alma, 
virgin. It all comes down to this. The, 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 the issue hinges on the meaning of this word, virgin. As I said, there are many who reject the messianic intent of this verse. There are, are many who believe that this cannot be referring to a literal virgin birth, and they believe that Isaiah should have probably used another word if he intended that. There is another word in the Hebrew language that they say is a better word for the word virgin. It's the word betulah. And they say it's the more common phrase, the more common word that should be used instead of alma. And so they say because the word used here is alma rather than the word betula, then this verse does not have any messianic implications. In other words, they're saying there's no way that this can be a promise of a messianic prophecy with an actual, literal virgin birth. That can't be. That can't, that can't be because that doesn't happen. And so it must mean something other than that. So what they do is they turn the page, critics of the virgin birth, and they go to chapter 8. So turn there with me. And those who deny the supernatural, those who are critical of the virgin birth, will then turn the page and they will say, well, this must have been fulfilled not by a literal virgin, but by a young woman, and it must be this which we see in Isaiah chapter 8. It must be a child of Isaiah himself. So verse 1 of chapter 8 says, And the Lord said to me, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey, which in Hebrew is maher shalal hashbaz. And I will take, verse 2, to myself, faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberachiah. And I approached the prophetess, this is Isaiah speaking, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, name him maher shalal hashbaz. Aren't you glad you don't have Hebrew names? That phrase means swift is the booty and speedy is the prey, referring to an imminent downfall of Syrian Israel. For before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So critics of the virgin birth will look at that passage and they'll say, listen, this must be the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. It can't be a virgin because the very next chapter gives us a reference that seems to indicate that's how it was fulfilled. But here's the problem with that. They would say that a young woman, a virgin, then married and then had a baby. And so the woman was a virgin when Isaiah spoke the prophecy back in chapter 7, but not when the boy was born because he was conceived by sexual relations with her husband. And so they would say that this child of Isaiah and his wife is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Problems with that view. Number one, Isaiah and his wife already have a child. And we met him back in chapter 7, verse 3. Take Shir Jashub with you. Problem number one is Isaiah has already, his wife has already had a child, so she was not a virgin. Problem number two, they don't name him Emmanuel, they name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. I think I would have preferred Emmanuel. There's no way this can be the fulfillment. There's no way this can be the, the, the prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. So here's the question. Go back to chapter 7. We need to ask the issue here. The question is, does the word Alma, back in chapter 7, verse 14, for virgin, does it preclude the idea of virginity? And the answer is flat out no. It does not preclude that idea. You say, how do you know that? Let me give you three reasons. Not on the slides. Let me just give you three reasons how we know that the word Isaiah used here, Alma, for virgin, is the right word and actually does refer to a virgin. Reason number one, every other usage of this word Alma in the Old Testament refers to a virgin. 
I can give you the references, Genesis 24, 43, Exodus 2, 8, Psalm 68, 25, Proverbs 30, verse 19, and Song of Solomon 1, verse 3, and 6, verse 8. Don't write them down. They all refer to a woman who is a virgin. So the idea of virginity is built within this term. Certainly there could be another term, betulah, that is used, but when this word alma is used in the Old Testament, it, used, it is used to refer to one who is a virgin. Reason number two, the Septuagint translates this word with a Greek word which means virgin. So, the Septuagint, you remember, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Back in 200 BC, a group of Jewish rabbis, scholars, got together and they said, let's translate the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, into Greek. And they formed this team. They think there were 70 of them, although we don't think that that is actually true. Sometimes you'll see the Septuagint referred to as the LXX, which is Roman numeral for 70. We don't know if there were 70 or not, but that's the shorthand for the Septuagint, LXX. This version, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates the word virgin or alma with the Greek word parthenos. And the Greek word parthenos can only refer to a virgin. It can refer to nothing else. Have you ever heard of parthenogenesis? Parthenos, parthenogenesis is actually a form of reproduction in which an egg can develop into an embryo without being fertilized. So we get the word parthenogenesis from this word parthenos. It refers to a virgin. It doesn't happen in humans, but it does happen in the insect world. Reason number three, two of the New Testament writers were very clear that this had to be a virgin. Hold your finger here in Isaiah chapter 7, and I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Go back to, over to Matthew chapter 1, and I want, you to see, I want you to see what Matthew thought of this term, whether he thought it was just a young woman of marriageable age who was not a virgin, or does he actually take it to mean a virgin? I want you to show you what Matthew thought of this, and I want to show you what Luke thought of this. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. What did Matthew think of this term, virgin? Start in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, watch the next phrase, before they came together. Before they came together. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now watch verse 22. He quotes directly from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. Now look at the next phrase. But kept her a virgin, literally, and was not knowing her until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. By the way, verse 25 puts to death any notion of the perpetual virginity of Mary. She had more children. What does Matthew think about this term? What does Matthew think about whether virgin in 714 of Isaiah is virgin or young woman? He's very clear on three different occasions in this text that we just read. He makes it very obvious. There was no question in his mind. This would be fulfilled by a virgin. That one, Mary, and the birth of Christ. Go over to Luke chapter 1. What does Luke think of this? 
Does he have any other thoughts? Maybe, maybe Luke sheds some other light out. Maybe Luke actually takes it to be a young woman who was married but not a virgin. Maybe, maybe Luke has a different perspective. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin, engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you, but she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called Son of God. Luke does not actually quote from Isaiah 7.14, but he clearly understands this would be fulfilled in a literal virgin, in Mary and the birth of of her son. And he said it would happen. Mary asked the question in verse 34 of Luke 1, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the, the answer comes in verse 35 by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. It would be the creative power of the Holy Spirit who would cause her to become pregnant the same creative power that we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, as the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the deep, as the Spirit of God is the creative energy behind God's creative power and creative design and desire to create everything. The Holy Spirit is the one making it happen. He's supplying the creative energy that brings the world into existence, and it's that same power that will bring Jesus into existence. To get very technical, to go back to 10th grade biology, if you're a male, you have an X and a Y chromosome. And if you are a female, you have two X chromosomes. And so Mary would have supplied the X chromosome, and the Holy Spirit would have supplied the Y chromosome. A miraculous conception. Go back to Isaiah chapter 7. So, what does the word Alma in verse 14 of chapter 7 mean? It means virgin. And how do we know that? Because every other case of it in the Old Testament is used that way. The Septuagint translates it that way. And Matthew and Luke had no question about whether that would be the fulfillment of the prophecy. An actual virgin, Mary, who would give birth to Christ. That's why in chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah says this is going to be a sign. It has to be a sign. And a sign is something unique, a sign is something miraculous, a sign is something extraordinary, a sign is something unusual. Listen, as great as it is when a woman has a baby, it's not that unusual. It happens every week here. <laughs> Kids all over the place. That's not a sign. A young woman who's married, having a baby, that's not a sign. But a virgin who's never known a man, who, who conceives a child, that's a sign. Verse 14 of Isaiah 7 goes on to say, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which as we know means God with us. So there's no doubt about what this refers to. There's no question about what the prophecy of Isaiah 7:14 is referring to. It's an undeniable reference to the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're thinking, 
you're thinking, how is that a sign for Ahaz? Ahaz gets a sign that doesn't get fulfilled for 700 years? How does that help Ahaz? It's another difficulty. I told you this is a hard text. If that's what it means, what I just told you, if that's what it means, it can refer to only to Christ, then, then how is it possible that Ahaz and his day would have a sign? Well, here's been some, just some couple ideas as to what it could refer to. It could refer to that hypothetically, if Emmanuel was born at that time, within a couple years, those two nations seeking to destroy them would actually be put out of existence. Look at verses 15 and 16 of Isaiah 7. It says, he will eat curds and honey at that time. He knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. It's possible that he's just saying, if Emmanuel were to be born right now, that this would be the sign that before he's age two or three, before he can tell the difference between good and evil, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. That's a possibility. Or it could actually be referring to the fact that this is a literal prophecy to be fulfilled when Christ is born and it's intended to be that far away, 700 years, because it's proof that Judah is still in existence 700 years later and that they've not been destroyed by these enemies. I don't know. There's a couple possibilities of what it could mean. Regardless, the point is very clear. There will be a virgin who conceives and gives birth to a son who is God. That's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the fact that 2,000 years ago, this actual prophecy was fulfilled. Point number three, the critical reasons for the virgin birth prophecy. Why, why was this necessary? Why is this so important? Why is this so critical to the Christmas story? Is it just a nice, fun fact that we celebrate? Is it just something that's interesting around Christmas time? And, and, and no, it's more than that. It is absolutely critical to the life and the ministry and the atonement of Jesus Christ. Let me give you three reasons why this is so necessary. This is not on the slide, so maybe you just want to jot these down. Three reasons. Why it is so critical for Christ to be born of a virgin. Reason number one, it provides supernatural evidence of Christ's uniqueness. It provides supernatural evidence of Christ's uniqueness. Listen, of all the billions and billions of people who have walked this earth not one of them can claim they entered this world in this way. Not one, except Christ. That points to his uniqueness. That points to the fact that he is special, that there is something different about him, that God has come into this world. He came performing signs, but Isaiah says Christ himself is the sign. He came casting out demons and healing people and performing miracles and raising people from the dead. He healed all people who were sick in, in the, his ministry and yet, not only did he perform signs, he is the sign that he's unique, that he is special. And listen, he is worthy of your worship and your life. So if you're here today and you're still trying to figure out, is Jesus really who he says he is? The answer is an undeniable yes. Yes. Because he and he alone entered the world in a way that no one else ever entered. Reason number two why this is so important, it approves the existence of the God-man it proves the existence of the God-man. Joseph, a man, 
and marry a woman in coming together cannot produce God. Why? Because Jesus told us in John chapter 3, he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So all that a man and a woman can produce is flesh, because like begets like. Flesh produces flesh. Flesh does not produce God. So the only way for, for God to enter the human race, to come to earth as a man, is for Jesus to be born of God. That's the only way. One writer says it this way. He says, in fact, no other detail in the Christmas story is more important than the virgin birth. The virgin birth must have happened exactly the way Scripture says. Otherwise, Christmas has no point at all. If Jesus is simply the illegitimate child of Mary's infidelity, or even if he is the child of Joseph's natural marital union with Mary, he's not God. And if he's not God, his claims are lies. And if his claims are lies, his salvation is a hoax. And if his salvation is a hoax, we're all doomed. If you take the virgin birth away, you don't have God in Christ And if Christ is not God, there is no salvation. Because God needs to redeem sinners by laying his life down. Sinners can't redeem sinners. Reason number three, why the virgin birth is so critical, it guarantees the sinlessness of Christ. It guarantees the sinlessness of Christ of Christ, the impeccability of Christ. The the only way for, for Christ to be exempted from imputed sin is for Christ to be born of God. Let me explain that. How, how is sin passed on? Sin is passed on through the normal processes of reproduction. When when a man and a woman come together and they produce a child, they're producing a sinner. Right, parents? Psalm 51, verse 5, David says, in sin, my mother conceived me. He's not saying I was was conceived in an immoral way. He's saying from the very moment of my conception, I was conceived in sin. When a man and a woman come together and they produce a child, the product is a sinner at its being. So the only way for Christ to be born and to be free from that imputed sin is for him to bypass the imputation of Adam's sin. And the only way for that to happen is for him to be born of a virgin. It guarantees the impeccability of Jesus Christ. And that's important because you need a sinless Savior to rescue you. So, what is Christmas about? It's about the virgin birth of the holy, spotless, sinless Son of God in direct fulfillment of Isaiah 7, verse 14. And so do you see now why Mary says, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. And do you see now why the angels say glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased? And do you see when the shepherds, when they came to visit, they went back glorifying and praising God for all that he had, they had heard and seen and just as had been told them. And do you see why the wise men, when they saw the child with Mary, his mother, they fell down and they, they worshipped. I wonder, is that your response? Are you thinking about this at Christmas? Are you thinking about the next thing you got to order on Amazon? It's about Christ. And it's about his direct fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14. Let's pray. Lord, these are staggering realities. And we confess that it's almost hard and possible for us to wrap our minds around all the, the nuances, all the, 
parts and pieces of this amazing prophecy. But we praise you, Lord, for the fact that you have promised a virgin-born Savior. And he has come. 2,000 years ago, he came and he has lived this, lived on this earth. He has walked this planet. And he has given of himself in order that we might have life. So, Father, thank you for this most precious promise. And thank you for the fact that it was fulfilled in our precious Lord and Savior. Lord, if there are any here this morning who have never yet truly trusted you, perhaps they've not yet been convinced that Christ is who he says he is, Lord, would you use this portion of your word to finally convict them and draw them to yourself and bring them to salvation? as we celebrate your son's birth. For the rest of us, Lord, let us respond in wonder, love, and praise to our precious Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We want to uh, close our service today with welcoming our new members. And uh, very appropriate that we spend the last couple minutes of our service just uh, giving the right hand of fellowship to those who are saying they want to make this their home church. We, we love this. We, we love a couple times a year welcoming new people into our church family and just embracing them as, as part of the body of believers. We, we believe membership is critical in the life of a church. We believe that membership is essential to a healthy church. And the reason we think that is because the scriptures assume that membership is part of just being a part of a local church. That the way you, you demonstrate your commitment to one another, the way you demonstrate a commitment to the elders, the way you demonstrate yourself a commitment to the preaching of God's word and using your gifts and, and being a part of that church family and, and responsibly serving others around you, all of that is manifested in church membership. So we believe it's very, very critical to do that, especially in a consumeristic mindset uh, that we live in today. There's a very kind of a consumer mentality towards, towards all things, including the church. And frankly, that's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach a very committed um, attitude toward the local church and its leaders and to one another. The only way you can pursue and practice the one another's is by being actively committed to one another in church membership. And so we want to invite 20 people uh, forward who are going to become members today. Bethany Voss, as I read your name, just come forward, please. Bethany Voss. Andy and Shelby DeGraff, Chris and Sue Bushman, Nick Bushman, Robert and Renette Smith, Alan Renee Pope, Nick Marvin, Joe and Jamie Meyer, Carol Meyer, Courtney Marquise, Peter Anderson, Cheryl Backing, Laurel Backing, and John and Aaron Backing. Sliding over all the way. Got to make room. Awesome. That's a great group. We need a bigger stage. Good problem to have. All right. Well, new members, we are so thrilled to have you a part of this church family. And we're so thankful that uh, the Lord's led you here. And so grateful that uh, you've said we want to be a part of this body of believers and make this our home church. I want to read for you just some commitments that you're making today, some member affirmation. I'll read all of them, and then if you would, at the end of uh, these questions, if you would just respond with an affirmative, we will. Will you walk in paths of righteousness and obedience, cultivating a teachable and hungry heart, and sustaining a life of faithfulness to God and His Word? Will you be faithful and diligent in your attendance to the corporate gatherings of Maranatha Bible Church? Will you give sacrificially to the Lord from and be a faithful steward of your time, talents, and resources in the measure he prospers you? Will you demonstrate love towards your brothers and sisters in Christ and maintain a spirit of unity by working through any issues that come between you and a fellow believer? Will you pursue knowing, developing, and using your spiritual giftedness for the edification and growth of this church? Will you honor, submit to, communicate with, and pray for God's appointed leaders at Maranatha and engage in the process of giving and receiving admonition with all gentleness and humility? And will you fulfill the great commission 
by making disciples and going, seeking to encourage the baptism of and teaching of obedience to those who respond to the good news of Christ, including your own children, family members, and acquaintances. If that's your desire, would you please say, we will. Outstanding. Church, would you please stand? Uh, You are welcoming them. We are welcoming them into this body. And so you need to also publicly commit to and affirm your willingness to welcome these dear folks into our church family. So church, will you welcome these members into our church family, encouraging them in their relationship with Christ, including them in your fellowship, and demonstrating a heart of love and care for them. If that's your desire, would you please say, we will. We will. Outstanding. Wonderful. Well, welcome. Would you guys just kind of go down the front here? We're going to have people come up in a moment and just welcome you. So just file down right in the front, stand in front of the stage. People are going to want to come and give you some hugs and handshakes. So uh, just make your way over. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.